Hello again, and welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. This is episode 19, Boxer Rebellion. Just a little review of the last episode. I discussed the death investigation of the Emperor Guangxu and how it was determined that he was poisoned. He is the emperor that I'm currently discussing. I also talked about, a lot more about, the Empress Dowager. We learned about the 100 Days of Reform Edicts issued by the Emperor Guangxu in 1898 and how those were not effective. And I talked about the continuing humiliation of the Qing dynasty by foreign powers. Before I get into this episode, as a reminder or notice, if this is your first episode you have listened Following the last episode of this podcast series on the Qing Dynasty, I will begin Season 2. Season 2 will be about the Japanese Meiji Restoration, but with a twist. The twist is that I will compare and contrast the modernization efforts of both the Qing Dynasty and the late Edo and Meiji Japan leading to the question that I answer in that podcast series. Why did Japan respond so much better than China to 19th century aggression by Western nations? After all, these aggressions took place nearly the same time. Listen and find out. In this episode, the humiliation continues and we get to the Boxer Rebellion. After the loss of the Chinese tribute states of Vietnam, Burma, Ryukyu Islands, Korea was all that was left for China. Korea had long been considered a valuable buffer between North China and the rest of the world. It was the leading tributary during both the Ming and Qing dynasties. And the history between Korea and the Qing dynasty is vast. Over 500 envoy trips to Peking and at least 150 to Korea. In fact, Korea had modeled a lot of their society, customs, and institutions to China. And since the start of the Qing dynasty, Korea maintained virtually no foreign relations, complete isolation, other than to the Qing dynasty, and to a much, much lesser extent, Japan. Korea had well-earned their nickname, the Hermit Kingdom. And as China and Japan opened with trade, Korea inevitably would be caught in the middle. Geographically, Korea is very close to Japan. So it makes perfect sense. 
there was increasing Western pressure on Korea for trade and diplomatic relations. And despite Korea's attempts to rebuff the aggression, it came anyways, first from the French and then by the Japanese. China, by this time, was too weak to defend and help its protectorate. And Japan began to pressure Korea. This began in the mid-1870s. And the Japanese used gunboat diplomacy against Korea. And it worked. By 1876, Korea was forced to enter into an agreement with Japan. The agreement recognized Korea as an independent nation because China had acquiesced in the agreement and did nothing to intervene in this agreement. They essentially implicitly agreed to the independence of Korea and China lost its suzerainty over Korea. Ten years later, in 1885, China and, and Japan would enter into their own agreement regarding Korea, the Treaty of Tientsin. And in that agreement, both countries agreed to withdraw their militaries from Korea, not to train any more military forces in Korea, and to inform the other nation when they would go back to Korea. This did not end the hostilities between China, and Japan. All of this eventually led to the Sino-Japanese War in 1895. It was mainly a naval affair that resulted in more humiliation for the Qing dynasty and additional loss of territory. It started because the Korean king had trouble with rebellious religious groups in Korea, and he reached out to the Qing dynasty and asked for help, and the Qing dynasty sent it. Japan took this as a violation of their earlier agreement, the Treaty of Tientsin, and so Japan responded by sending their militaries to Korea. That resulted in the Sino-Japanese War. And in that war, the Chinese lost a portion of the Liandong or Liaoning Peninsula that is part of mainland China. They lost that to the Japanese. The Japanese were particularly interested in the port city on the southern tip of that peninsula. It was called then Port Arthur. Today, it's called Dalian. And it was strategically located seaport right, as I said, on the very southern tip of that peninsula. The Japanese now had a foothold on mainland China and mainland Asia. The hostilities ended in another agreement between the Japanese and the Chinese called the Treaty of Shimon Oseki. Shimon Oseki. And that was done on April 17, 1895. The treaty recognized Korean independence the Chinese agreed to indemnify the Japanese, and the Chinese would cede to Japan, Taiwan, the Pescador Islands, and the southern tip of the Liaoning Peninsula. The Chinese also agreed 
to open up five more treaty ports to trade, and the Japanese right to open and operate businesses in China, as well as reciprocal privileges and rights that China had already granted the Western nations. Another jaw-dropping humiliation for the Qing government. A further sign, the Tongzhi restorations were a failure. And the treaty, to make things worse, only really gained China temporary peace. The immediate reaction in China to the treaty was outraged. Taiwan itself protested. It did not want to become a part of Japan, but to no avail. Japan formally annexed Taiwan in October of 1895. So what happened here? Well, Japan was fully modernized and organized, like the early Qing dynasty. They had a single focused purpose at this point in their history. Japan put everything into the effort to capture territory. The Qing dynasty, on the other hand, were distracted and sent poor leaders to fight its side. The Japanese sent their best. There was also massive corruption. Sushi, the emperor's dowager, diverted millions in naval funds so she could fund the construction and rebuilding of the Summer Palace. And finally, once again, the Qing dynasty did not fully understand foreign politics. They wrongly believed that either France, Russia, the United States, or England would intervene. China's defeat proved that the Manchu dynasty was incapable of coping with the challenges of that time. The self-strengthening movement, or the Tongzhi Restoration, were only superficial. However, within one week of the treaty with Japan, the Treaty of Shimono Seki, don't always pronounce that correctly, Shimono Seki, by the way, it's a small town on the west coast of Japan, probably the nearest point to Korea. Within one week after that treaty, Russia, France, and Germany sent a joint note to Tokyo warning the Japanese that their possession of Leonding Peninsula would threaten China, make Korea's independence seem illusory, and upset the general peace in Asia. In other words, they wanted Japan off of the Chinese and Asian mainland. Russia, however, was really more concerned with itself. It did not want Japan to have a foothold in the Asian continent. Russians themselves had always wanted Port Arthur. Port Arthur has one advantage. It's a deep-sea, ice-free, year-round Pacific seaport. Germany went along with the 
intervention with Russia and protested the Japanese move because it wanted to keep Russia's attention away from Europe. France went along with the intervention because it had interests in Indochina, Vietnam, Cambodia, and it wanted Russia to at least acquiesce or acknowledge the French interest and not to disturb that. Remember, at this time, World War I is only a mere 20 years from this point. The three nations, it's called the Triple Intervention, together assembled warships and troops along Russia's eastern seaboard. Japan got the message. Japan let it be known that it would return and abandon Liaoding Peninsula to China for additional indemnities. But the Qing government did not have the money. So in a secret alliance between Russia and China, Russia agreed to loan the money that the Qing government needed. The Qing dynasty was grateful to Russia, and in return, it allowed Russia to build a railroad across Chinese territory, Manchuria, and cede to the Russians the land necessary to do that. The sides also agreed to defend the other against an attack by the Japanese. So let me boil this down just a little bit here from the Chinese perspective. Japan got paid initially in the, tr- in the treaty they signed with China an indemnity for territory that they took from China, Taiwan, the Pescadores, and Liaoning Peninsula. Then the Japanese gave it back to China for another sum of money. So essentially, the Chinese government paid twice for the Liaoning province. Wow. This arrangement, I'm sure, was enough to enrage any Chinese patriot. And if there was not already, there was now open discussion about the future of the Qing dynasty and if regime change was necessary. The Japanese were actually participating and encouraging in it. Anyone thinking it can't get worse for the Qing dynasty and China will be wrong. It got worse. Much worse. About the time of the 100 days of reform from the Emperor Guangxu, there was a noticeable uptick in the anti-Western sentiment in northern China. At first, they were protesting the ubiquitous Christian missionary settlements. The anti-Western sentiment, though, eventually spread throughout China. Fifty years of foreign humiliation had taken its toll. Contemporaneously, there were poor economic conditions, many of which were, rightly and wrongly, blamed on the foreign occupiers. Specific instances of events that outraged many Chinese were foreign-owned railroads operating in China, the 
free trade that was allowed the foreign nations in China. The railroad particularly threatened traditional Chinese transport systems. Unemployed Grand Canal workers began to riot. There was also major flooding of the Yellow River in 1898. This was followed by an extreme drought in northern China. Locals blame the foreigners for these disasters and at this point in time blame foreigners for everything, particularly the Christian missionaries whom the locals believed had disrupted the karmic balance in China. Enter the Boxer sect. Their Mandarin name is Ye He Chuan. The West called them the Boxers because of their ability at performing magic, martial arts, kung fu, stunts, gymnastics, and self-defense exercises. The Boxers believed they were impervious to bullets and were immortal. The sect could trace their history back to the White Lotus sect that had rebelled in China in the late 18th century and early 19th century. 100 years later, the sect had turned anti-foreign, xenophobic. And in 1900 in northern China, the boxers began to riot and sought the violence to express their displeasure with foreigners. Initially, the Qing government asserted force to stop the boxers, but that was not enough to stop them. As the boxers approached Peking, they began to cut communication and transport lines. They burned foreign settlements. And it became clear the boxers were going to occupy Peking. At that point, the Empress Dowager shifted her support. She now favored the boxers and wanted to curry favor with them and take advantage of the anti-foreigner animus. By the summer of 1900, the boxers were in Peking and burning and looting foreign residences. There were stories that the boxers had gone as far as exhuming the bodies of dead foreign missionaries. They burnt churches and they killed Chinese Christians. Ministers and converts were all victims. Four nations grew increasingly nervous about the safety of their legations in Peking. Probably because the Empress Dowager felt her safety was in jeopardy, she made a public pronouncement that an all-out attack by the boxers was necessary to purge China of the humiliations of the last 50 years caused by the foreigners. This was basically, and interpreted to be, by the foreign nations as a declaration of war against them. It was clear the foreign nations would have to send personnel to Peking to protect its property and people. The very famous 55 days from June 20th of 1900 
to August 14th of 1900, the international legations were under a, vir- a siege, not a virtual siege, a siege by the boxers. A consortium, or an allied force, if you will, of eight nations sent military forces to relieved to relieve their beleaguered legations. The relief force were first resisted by the boxers and the Qings. But a second force came of around 10,000 troops. And this one got through the siege. The four nations that made this alliance acted as a single force. And the famous eight-nation alliance would comprise of Japanese, in fact, Japanese were about half of them, Russians, English, Americans, French, Australians, Italians, and Germans. And they were led by a German commander. Incidentally, this alliance provides the only example in history of the armed forces of all the great powers operating under the same commander. The boxers were overwhelmed by the Allied forces by August. Sushi and the imperial court, along with the Emperor Guangxu, in tow, fled Peking to Xi'an. I know I have not mentioned or said much about the emperor recently, and obviously that is because he was not in charge. But he did oppose the emperor's dowager's support for the boxers. There's also a rumor that the emperor Guangxu was encouraged by his favorite concubine, known as the Pearl Concubine, to stay behind and make peace with the four nations. Allegedly, the emperor's dowager, getting wind of this, through the consort, Donna Well. Anyway, the Boxer Rebellion ended. There are estimates of 100,000 casualties, both boxers and Chinese citizens, but it's hard to say. Peking was also a victim of this incident as it was burned by the foreign nations. To say the least, the rebellion was another humiliation for the Qing dynasty. The alliance reached out to the Qing dynasty and they sought a settlement. The alliance insisted on meeting with the emperor himself and not the emperor's dowager. She apparently stewed about this slight Guangxu returned to Peking, and in September of 1901, the agreement was signed, and it's known as the Boxer Protocol. And the terms were that those responsible for the rebellion would be punished, that the Chinese would pay, or the Chinese government would pay, a $68 million indemnity over 39 years at 4% annual interest. A permanent legation guard was created in Peking and foreign troops would be permanently stationed in Peking. 
The Boxer Rebellion is misnamed. The rebellion was against foreigners, and in that sense, not a rebellion as we understand the normal meaning of the word. The Boxers started a hundred years earlier disliking the Qing Manchu leaders. But but as a result of all the foreign shenanigans, came to support their Manchu leaders. The Boxer Rebellion was a backward-looking, xenophobic uprising. I think that sums it up. That's enough for now. Next time, I'll finish out Guangxu's reign and his life and the life of the Empress Dowager as well and much more. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.